Welcome to Authentic with Dr. Greg Ammons, the podcast where we talk about aspects of the Christian life so we can live real, authentic, genuine lives. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Authentic. I am Dr. Greg Ammons, the senior pastor of First Baptist Church of Garland, Texas, and today we will be looking at uh, five questions on authority. Five questions on authority, aspects of God's Word that maybe you have questions about. Of course, this is a follow-up from a sermon series I preached recently at the First Baptist Church of Garland uh, entitled, Asking for a Friend, maybe questions that you've always wondered about God or the Bible or some aspect of the Christian life but really did not want to ask. And so, in this podcast, we'll follow up with five questions on authority. Question number one. How were the books of the Bible selected and compiled, and what decisions were made so that we have the Word of God today in its current form? This is a question that I get from time to time as pastor. How did we get the books of the Bible and Who decided which books of the Bible were to appear uh, in Scripture? Well, there are some false sources out there. For example, Dan Brown in his book, The Da Vinci Code, basically uh, said it is a fact that the books of the Bible came from one man, Constantine, basically decided which books of the Bible should be in there. And, And that's totally false. That is inaccurate. So let me explain how we got the books of the Bible and maybe some a little bit about the process of, uh, of how they were selected. Even though we think of the Bible as being one book, it is actually a collection of 66 books. And we realize that there was some type of historical process by which these particular books were gathered together, placed into one volume that we know as the Bible. And so we call the Bible the canon the C-A-N-O-N, not C-A-N-N-O-N, like the, like the weapon, but the C-A-N-O-N, canon, which is a Greek word that means measuring rod or measuring stick. So the Bible as the canon is referred to as that because it is our measuring device or measuring rod for all of our thoughts and actions and values. Now, there have been a lot of theories set forth over the history of the church as to exactly how God's hand was involved in the selection process, and I absolutely believe His hand was involved in the selection process so that we would have His Word to us as He wants it. Skeptics have pointed out that over 3,000 books were candidates for inclusion in the New Testament canon alone, But only a handful, 27 of them, were selected. And so skeptics say, shouldn't that raise some questions? If there were 3,000 books considered and only 27 made it in. Well, keep in mind, however, that of those not included in the last analysis, there were at the most maybe three or four that were given serious consideration. So, to speak in terms of two or 3,000 being boiled down to 27 or something like that is really a distortion of what happened. There were really only three or four books 
that were debated whether they should be included or not. And I'll share with you in a moment uh, the process, uh, the criteria by which books were selected. Now, some people take a position that the church is a higher authority than the Bible. Uh, I don't believe that. Some believe that. Roman Catholicism believes that. Uh, But I, I do not believe that. The Bible itself is the final authority. Now, in terms of, of uh, declaring what should be in the Bible, which books should be in the Bible, and what the Bible should contain, I believe it's important to remember that it's one thing to make something authoritative. It's another thing to recognize something that is already authoritative. And that is pretty well what happened with the books of the New Testament. The human decisions to include those 27 books in the New Testament did not make them authoritative, that something that was not authoritative to begin with suddenly become authoritative. Rather, the church was recognizing what already had been considered authoritative. So the early church looked to these books as authoritative already, and the church just recognized that, that yes, they were authoritative and they were to be included, recognized as Holy Scripture. So we cannot avoid the reality that though God's invisible hand of providence was at work in the process, He used humans to, uh, to put together the canon. But it was definitely God's hand and God's mind and heart working through those councils and through those men uh, to write the Bible and include the Bible, the books in the Bible. Now, What was the process the church councils went through in deciding which manuscripts would be included in the Bible? The the church met, as we know, in various historical councils in which the representatives of the church examined the documents that were up for possible inclusion in the Bible. But it was not just some random act by which they chose the books. There were some criteria that the council used uh, to, for the, the books to be admitted to Scripture. One of the criteria was apostolic origin. That is, if, if it could be shown that a book was written by an apostle of Jesus Christ, that book was accepted into the canon. For example, we see that the Gospel of Matthew was written by one of the twelve disciples. He was a member of the apostolic body. So his book was accepted as canonical from the very beginning. It really didn't take until the final council at the end of the 4th century for Matthew to be included. It was in there in day one. It was written by an eyewitness uh, to Jesus Christ. But then you have other books like Mark. Mark was not an apostle of Jesus Christ that we know of. But Mark was the writer for Peter. And we know that Peter's authority stood behind what Mark said. And so Mark's gospel was accepted very early in the Christian church. In fact, Paul's letters were accepted from the very beginning. Peter uh, referred to Paul's letters as Scripture. So because of that, those books were without question. But um, the first criteria was apostolic origin of of the writing. Excuse me, a second criteria of a book's acceptance was uh, the early church community. 
this re- required w- uh, conformity with, with that of the core books about which there was never any doubt. The early church used some of the core books of Scripture early in their teaching, uh, and so that clearly was Scripture included in Scripture because the early church was already using the books uh, anyway. Another criteria that was often used was, did it contradict what Jesus had already taught? Now, there were some early um, books that were not non-canonical, and, and um, they were ones that, well, basically they were written by false authors, hoping to get included in the early church as uh, canonical. Um, there were many of them that were written like that, and, and many of them contradicted what Jesus had already taught. Some of them were pretty outlandish, by the way. Um, Gospel of Thomas and, and uh, uh, writings like that that were clearly considered fraudulent were not included because their teachings had contradicted what Jesus had already taught in person. And so those books were immediately cast out. So, excuse me, so I believe what we have in Scripture, 27 books in the New Testament, and of course the books in the Old Testament, 66 books altogether, 39 old, 27 in the New, uh, form 66 books exactly the way God desired that we have His Word. So what we have, I believe, is the inerrant, infallible Word of God written down to us, yes, by men, but put together by the hand of God so His inerrant Word is written to us authoritatively in the pages of Scripture. Question number two. Whenever I discuss biblical concepts with some of my friends, sometimes they reply, well, that's your interpretation. Well, how should you respond? So many times, whenever you're discussing a passage Perhaps it's a sin. Perhaps it's something the Bible declares as a sin. Sometimes people will respond by saying, well, that's your interpretation. That's not my interpretation. And that's such a common response. You know, you, you look at a passage or you talk about a, something the Bible teaches and you look at it and, and it's, it's frustrating really because they say, well, that's your interpretation. And what they're probably trying to say is the Bible can be interpreted many different ways by many different people. So what do they really mean to say by that? That anything you say must be wrong, and since that's your interpretation, it must be an incorrect one. But the real issue here is whether or not there is a correct interpretation and an incorrect interpretation of a passage of Scripture. When many people say, that's your interpretation, what they really mean is, I'll interpret the Bible my way, You interpret the Bible your way, and everybody has the right to interpret the Bible however they want to interpret it. Well, our forefathers died for the right of what we call private interpretation, that every Christian has the right to read the Bible for themselves, but we don't have the right to interpret Scripture incorrectly. We do not have that right. Whenever interpretation became an issue in the 16th century at the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church took a dim view of it. And and one of their canons at the fourth session said, nobody has the right to distort Scripture uh, 
by applying a private interpretation to it. And so I, I agree. No one has the right to interpret the Bible incorrectly. So I believe there is only one correct interpretation of the Bible of every single passage. Now, there are many applications, but there is only one interpretation. So in other words, every passage means one thing. It, 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 it can't mean many things. It can be applied in many ways, but every passage only means one thing. There is only one correct interpretation. There may be a thousand different applications, but only one interpretation. My interpretation may or may not be right as yours. Yours may not be right. They may be different, but they can't both be right. That is relativism taken to a ridiculous extreme. So whenever someone says, well, that's your interpretation, I would respond by saying, well, the Bible only means one thing. So let's examine. How do we find out what it means? Let's look at the historical background, the, the, the original languages, the context, the syntax. Put it all together, study it carefully, and decide what it does this verse mean or this passage mean. can't mean many things. It only means one thing. Now that is backed up in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. Let me read these to you and, and explain what Peter is saying here. Verse 19 says, We have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now listen to verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Verse 21, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So this passage clearly tells us that no prophecy of Scripture is a private interpretation. Or in other words, I can't say, well, I interpret it one way for myself and you interpret it another way for yourself. That's totally incorrect. You can't do that because the Bible only means one thing. So, find out what it means. Find out what the passage means and apply it to your life. And applications may be varied, but the interpretation of any passage only means one thing. So, when someone says, well, I interpret it my way, you interpret it your way, let them know that is incorrect according to 2 Peter 1, 19-21. And let's sit down and try to find out exactly what the, this passage means in its historical, grammatical, and literary context. Alright, question number three. How old is the earth? By way of authority, sometimes people look at Scripture and say, well... Does the Bible ever tell us how old the earth is? Young earth proponents say, well, we, the earth is basically around anywhere from 4,000 to 6,000 years old. Old earth proponents say the earth could be up to 4.5 billion years old, or some say up to 14 billion years old. Well, that difference is immense. So, let's look a little bit about... Um, how old the earth is, and what does the Bible say uh, about it? 
first of all, uh, many years ago, there, there were attempts to try to put exactly uh, uh, on the earth an age and based on Scripture and, and what it says. Simply put, you really can't, though, from Scripture, tell exactly how the earth is. The Bible doesn't say explicitly, quote, the earth is 6,000 years old. And it's probably a good thing it doesn't because next year it would be out of date. And so it never really tells us an exact date of the earth. Many years ago, an archbishop by the name of James Usher tried to calculate from Scripture, uh, counting backward, and came up with that the earth was uh, created in 4004 B.C. In fact, he even deducted from ancient Jewish calendars that creation occurred on October 23rd. He even named the, the day October 23rd, 4004 B.C. That was uh, from the Julian calendar, uh, the autumnal equinox of that year. And so he put it at October 23rd, 4004. Now, J.B. Lightfoot and, and other scholars had already uh, looked at, John Lightfoot, at, at some other dates. For example, the fall of 3,929 was John Lightfoot's uh, estimation as to when the earth was created. Johannes Kepler uh, put it at 3,992 B.C. Sir Isaac Newton, interestingly enough, said the earth was created in 4,000 B.C. So there, there were attempts, and most of those are, are young earth theories. Those were attempts to try to calculate when exactly the earth was created. You may say, well, how in the world did they come up with that? Let me just kind of briefly explain how James Usher, his is the most common, uh, looking back uh, at from young earth theorists, his is the most common um, uh, theory, and that is back to 4004 B.C. Here's how James Usher did it. He basically did it in three phases. Number one, creation to Abraham's migration was phase number one. And this section is fairly easy to calculate using the chronological data that's given to us. Genesis 5 and Genesis 11, we are then given an unbroken male lineage with dates from the creation to Abraham being called out of Ur of the Chaldees. And so Usher puts that at 4004 B.C. up to 1922 B.C. But that's the phase number one that Usher used. And that was creation to Abraham's migration. Phase number two, Abraham's migration to Solomon's temple. Now, Usher wrote uh, this time frame from Abraham leaving Haran uh, to the Exodus was 430 years. And then 1 Kings 6, he said, gives 480 years from the Exodus to the beginning of Solomon's temple in the fourth year of Solomon's reign. So he lists this 910-year span going from 1922 to 1012 B.C. That would be phase number two. Phase number three, Usher said, was the period of the temple laid to the Babylonian captivity. Now this period is a little more difficult to calculate, just to be honest, because you had repeated difficulties in correlating the years of the kingdoms of Judah and Israel, there, there's a lot of overlapping reigns in there. 
but Usher shortens this to 424 years, which would be 1012 B.C. to 588 B.C. So that's basically how James Usher calculated, came up with his calculations in three phases, <coughs> excuse me, going all the way back to Genesis 5 and Genesis 11. Of course, now, it's difficult to say uh, God's Word, uh, I think, is closer, closer to 6,000 years old. Uh, if you look at it, if you do a rough calculation of how it all works, the age of the earth can be estimated by taking the first five days of creation from earth's creation to Adam, following the genealogies from Adam to Abraham in Genesis 5 and 11, and then adding in the time from Abraham to today. If you do that, roughly comes up with, I believe, what's a young earth theory, anywhere from 4,000 to 6,000, probably closer to 6,000 years old. But uh, that's what most young earth theorists uh, say today. Now, man's dating systems, they're all over the place. They range from a few thousand years old uh, to to a few billion years old, up to 14 billion years old. And they say because of carbon dating, but again, God could have created the earth with the appearance of age. Um, Whenever he created in Genesis 1, for example, trees, you don't expect them to be a day old as saplings. They were full-grown trees uh, because of the wording that's used there in in Genesis. So it appears that God did create with the appearance of age in Genesis 1. So I think that could throw off man's uh, dating system there as well. So again, that's just a little bit on young earth versus old earth worldviews. I personally believe more uh, young earth is more accurate, uh, but again, we're not told. You really can't worry about it and you can't say definitively. No one can because the Bible does not give us a specific date as to how old the earth is. Question number four, which Bible translation is the best? In talking about the authority of Scripture and talking about the Bible itself, which Bible translation is the best? Well, Bible readers have often wondered that, and I'm asked that question as a pastor very often, what is the best translation of the Bible? Bibles may either be translations of the original texts or paraphrases of the translations. And I'll explain to you a little bit about what those mean and which of the translations I feel are, are the best ones for you to use. I do believe it's important to understand that the Bibles are, uh, of course, one or the other, the original text written by the biblical authors no longer exist. And so the Bibles that we read today were translated or paraphrased from ancient manuscripts. Of course, the New Testament was written in Greek, um, parts of it Aramaic, Old Testament written in, in Hebrew, uh, parts of it Aramaic. and so. But everything we're reading today is translated or paraphrased because the original manuscripts no longer exist. Whenever you choose a Bible version, I believe that you should select a version that has been translated from the latest, most authoritative, and most accurate texts. Now, five popular versions of the Bible fall into various categories of translation. 
First of all, number one, uh, for example, the New American Standard is considered to be strictly literal. I mean a literal word for word from the translation into English, so much so that sometimes it reads rather wooden or odd or maybe just a little stiff because it is so literal from the languages. That would be the New American Standard. Strictly literal. A second group would be considered literal. Not strictly literal, but literal. That would be the King James Version and the New King James Version. Still literally translated from the text, but not just a strict uh, uh, being literal, uh, literally strictly from the text itself. A third one would be thought for thought. That would be like the New International Version, where you don't take literal words, you take a thought process and you consider that thought for thought. That's like the New International Version. And then you have what's called a functional equivalent, and that is like the uh, New Living Translation. That is called a functional equivalent. Now, a strictly literal or literal translation takes the words from the original manuscripts and translate them literally as it says word for word. When a Bible is said to have been translated as thought for thought, like the New International Version, it means the translator has taken the original words and applied exegesis, which is an understanding of the thought behind the words, and then convey that into what you have. So it's more of a thought process rather than a word process. Now, a functional equivalent, such as the NLT, that seeks to be literal, but with a little greater freedom of the exegesis. So let me read Hebrews 1.3 and see how these five different versions render these words. By the way, I believe Hebrews 1.3, anytime you pick up a new Bible, and you want to see what the translation reads like, turn to Hebrews 1.3 and see how that is translated because that is a key verse that different translations use in different ways but can really give you a good picture of that particular translation as to how it translates who Jesus is. For example, that Hebrews 1.3 in the New American Standard says, quote, And He, Jesus, is the radiance of His glory, and the exact representation of his nature. That's the NASB. Now listen to King James. Quote, Jesus, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, that's the King James, listen to NIV now, which is the thought for thought. Quote, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. That's the NIV. Now listen to the functional equivalent. This is the NLT, the New Living Translation. Quote, The sun reflects God's own glory, and everything about him represents God exactly. The best Bible translation, I believe, will ultimately be determined by your personal preference, really. But in order for a translation to be considered good, It should be reliable. It should be readable. Translators do well that they adhere to updated research with aspects with respect to original manuscripts. But also, as you know, meanings of words have changed over the years as well. And so, because word meanings have changed in, in the English language, that necessitates sometimes 
a newer translation coming out. Let me, let me give an example. Forty years ago, the word gay, G-A-Y, meant happy. Well, it no longer means happy today. It means something totally different. So, a translation that is translating happy as gay um, would be would be mistranslated by many people today in modern translations. Let me give you another word. For example, the word cute, C-U-T-E. 200 years ago, the word cute meant bow-legged. Well, it doesn't mean that today. So, any translation 200 years ago of cute meaning bow-legged, you would definitely need a newer translation today. So, those are two examples sometimes of how words change. So, therefore, we, we need a newer translation. Now, the best approach for Bible readers is probably to use several versions of the Bible. A version such as the New American Standard could be used for study. A uh, New Living Translation might be used for your, your meditation or your personal devotion. I use the NLT at First Baptist Church of Garland for our public reading. Whenever we have Logos, we read Scripture together as a congregation one time a month, one Sunday evening a month. We use the NLT because it's very readable as a congregation to go through. But really the choice of Bible versions will ultimately be a, a personal uh, one. Let me give you the versions that I use. I, I really pretty well preach from the New King James Version and the ESV, the English Standard Version. The reason I use the New King James is because it's familiar. It's, a, it's accurate, very literal. Uh, but it's very familiar uh, with most of the people to whom I'm preaching. Many of them raised with the King James, and so the New King James uh, is very understandable because it's very familiar. English, the ESV, the English Standard Version, is also a good version because it also is very literal and very understandable today. So I use that from the pulpit, primarily preaching from those two versions. Many times in my own personal study of God's Word, I'll use the, the New American Standard, the NASB, because it is so strictly literal with the original uh, words and their meanings. So I'll do personal study out of um, the uh, uh, NASB, and then sometimes I'll just read the NLT in my, in my daily devotional reading, the New Living Translation, which is a functional equivalent, uh, because it's so readable, and, and sometimes you just want to sit down, read Scripture as opposed to studying Scripture, and so just for reading uh, purposes, I'll sometimes mostly use the NLT just for reading the Bible itself. Let me say a word about paraphrases right quick. Paraphrases are, I try to avoid those, especially for study, because paraphrases are simply man's opinion of what the translations say. For example, the Living Bible, translated in 1976 by Kenneth Taylor, it was basically what Kenneth Taylor believed the translations meant. So a paraphrase is what someone believes the translations mean. The Message Bible, for example, is what Eugene Peterson thinks that the translations mean. So, I try to stay away from paraphrases, which is a person's opinion of the translation. I try to just go straight to the translation itself and do my study, personal time reading, and preaching 
from those. Now, do I ever read the message of the Living Bible? Yeah, from time to time I'll pick up those and say, I wonder how they interpreted a certain verse or what they say on a certain verse or a certain passage. And I'll read that just to kind of get a flavor of what they feel that it meant. But as far as preaching, personal reading, or study, I prefer to use the translations. Question number five, the last one that we'll look at today. Does the Bible, talking about authority of Scripture, does the Bible degrade women? Does the Bible put down women? Now, Many times I've heard people say to me, well, you know, Pastor, the Bible, it just, it puts down women, and that's not our culture today. Well, if you study Scripture closely, it does not degrade women, it elevates women. The time frame in which the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, that both were written, Women did not have equal rights. Women were not considered human uh, by some people. They were considered proper to be sold, property to be sold or exchanged or traded or bartered for. They, they, did, they saw women simply as property and not as equal human beings in God's sight. However, if you read the Bible, it is actually elevating women to a greater status and a status of equality with man that was unheard of for the time frame. The uh, Semitic cultures many times degraded women, and still do, some of them do, even today, put women down, don't consider women to be equal as men, but the Bible does not show that. Let me give you some passages uh, that kind of show this, uh, this fact in, in the New Testament. Colossians 7, 3 says that the husband... Uh, should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and the wife to her husband. Therefore, they are to have equal roles in the marriage relationship of fulfilling their marital duty. That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3. Ephesians 5, 21 says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Um, Ephesians 5, 25 through 33 talks about the husband-wife relationship and tells the husbands to love your wife as Christ loved the church. That's a, that's a tall standard. That is elevating love for someone, such as uh, comparing it to the love Jesus has for his bride, the church. Colossians 3.19 says, Husband, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Uh, Galatians 3.28 tells us that, that we're all one in Christ Jesus. Paul said in Colossians, uh, rather Galatians uh, 3, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but you're all one in Christ Jesus. So, I don't see anything in those passages in the New Testament that degrade women, written into a culture that did degrade women. These words elevated women to a status that was unknown. In, in the ancient world. In fact, to say that we're all one in Christ Jesus, Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female, that was a controversial statement Paul made, Galatians 3.28. We just accept it as fact today. Uh, but boy, in, in that day, that was a controversial statement written by the Apostle Paul. But it's true. Male and female are one in Christ Jesus. So, 
Uh, you can point to other factors in the Old Testament. There were women leaders. There were women of prominence in the Bible. Deborah was one. Uh, she was a, uh, was a judge. Ruth, uh, Naomi, both leaders. Um, you look at the book, the book of Esther, uh, a, a leader that shows prominence of women in the Bible and women leaders. Uh, also, there were instances in the Bible where women were treated with love. They were treated with dignity. They were treated with respect. They had value. They were shown as wise. They were shown as intelligent. Uh, the role of women in Israel was much better than any other ancient societies, and that was because God's word to His people was to elevate the status uh, of women. Um, so, if you look at it, Jesus Himself, uh, He spoke to women, He healed women, He touched women, He taught them, He allowed them to serve Him. Um, in fact, it was women, the Bible tells us, who helped support Jesus and fund Jesus. In the book of Luke it tells us they were the ones who, who supported Jesus and His apostles financially. Joanna and some other women who supported Jesus financially. Uh, Jesus elevated women. His ministry to them. Uh, he, he elevated women to a status unknown uh, for that time period. Women were allowed to pray with men in church. Women were used as witnesses in the resurrection accounts. This implies respect because women were not considered to be reliable witnesses in those days. But it was to women that the angels first told the resurrection of Jesus. Paul addressed women along with men in his greeting. He addressed a woman named Junia by the title of Apostle. Uh, he referred to Aquila and Priscilla, a husband and wife team, as church leaders. He talked about Phoebe as a prominent woman, a servant. A, he called it, quote, protasis in Greek, or a leader of her community. So we see many times throughout Scripture that women were elevated to a status, not degraded anyway, but elevated for that time period to a higher status. So whenever I hear that statement today that the Bible degrades women, it lets me know that someone has not done their research on the Bible. Uh, they're really not familiar with Scripture when they make that statement because the Bible does not degrade women but elevates them to a great status. Well, I hope this has been helpful to you today. Uh, five questions on authority. And join us soon for another podcast as we look at five more questions that maybe you had that you wondered about but dearly didn't want to ask. And we'll look at some more of those soon. But I'm glad you joined us today for this podcast. You have been listening to Authentic with Dr. Greg Ammons. Join us next time for a new podcast whenever we discuss various aspects of the Christian life, relating theological truths from God's Word to practical ways to live for Jesus Christ on a daily basis in a real, genuine, and authentic way.